the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Let Us Reason, a Christian-Muslim dialogue with host Al Fadi. Let Us Reason is a unique show utilizing theology, apologetics, and evangelism to reach Muslims for Christ by comparing and contrasting Christian and Muslim doctrines. And now, your host, Al Fadi. Okay, guys, uh, this is part four uh, of our um, you know, podcast, Let Us Reason, but this is a continuation of this two-hour long live stream uh, concerning uh, what we called the historical critique of Islam introducing the sin sifters. These are the panelists here. Those are the ones that have been pouring out their heart into researching and finding uh, various topics, various uh, evidence that the standard Islamic narrative, if we were to follow it the way it is, uh, doesn't really at least line up sometimes with some of the findings. Now, there are ways to try to explain that, obviously, and that's what each one of these panelists is doing, taking an angle at this standard Islamic narrative to try to make sense of certain parts of it and, of course, uh, shed some light on other parts as well. Well, uh, we left off last time uh, with uh, uh, Paul, and uh, he mentioned to us about his passion concerning the Jerusalem theory and his interest in writing also, hopefully soon, an academic article to be published concerning that. But with that in mind, I want to now jump to Thomas. Thomas, why don't you tell us about what you will be working on in 2022? And then after you do that as well, go ahead and tell us in in your own uh, mind uh, basically, if you were to compare your own findings to what we call the textual criticism of the New Testament, or at least the the Bible in general, uh, what, what sticks out to you? So for, for next year, I already mentioned I'm currently working on a book, and I hope to finish it next year. Um, this will be this will also be a big picture book, if you will. Uh, it will be a pretty long, I, I fear, <laughs> um, but I want to cover. Basically, um, for a lay audience, what, what the Inara group has published over the last 20 years, more or less. Um, obviously, um, I've, um, it won't go into that much detail because they published 10 books, each with 1,000 pages. Um, but I want to put it in terms so that a lay audience can understand it. But it will also include all the references so you can dig deeper if you want to on any, any particular topic. Um, so, so this this big picture is is what really interests me as well, and um, so last time we we talked about or the others talked about what they think is like the most damning piece of evidence they're working on their finding on this Islamic narrative, and what I think um, it's it's not any individual piece; it's the fact that it all fits together. It's like like this big puzzle, and we are making making a picture out of it, and it actually works. And that's this Jerusalem hypothesis. It's the Aramaic language in the Quran. It's the Aramaic traditions that we know of in early Christianity. Um, so, for example, 
Um, we know that we know of, um, these Aramaic Christians like Paul of Samosata, who was a bishop of, of Antioch. And when you look at his beliefs, it's it's almost the same as what you find in the Quran. Um, and the same going forward, you have um, Afahat, the Persian sage, again, very similar um, in his beliefs. We find tons of evidence um, from Aramaic literature. Um, for example, the this Alexander Romans that we find in the Quran, which really sticks out a lot. And, and that doesn't even make a lot of sense to put it in there. But when you know that this is a, an Aramaic um, Christian text written at, sort of as Byzantine propaganda, actually, but then taken by the Arabs and the Byzantine propaganda part taken out, then um, you kind of understand where, where we're coming from. Or, or the book of the Cave of Treasures, again, very influential on the Quran. Um, so I think it's really this bigger picture that that's so fascinating that 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 all those those individual um, people who who are um, doing research in very different directions, but when they come back with their results, it all it all fits. Uh, I think that's that's really the best part. Um, now, as for your question regarding similarities or differences with biblical historical criticism, um, well. I would say, well, the biblical historical criticism is really where where this all comes from. It was that's when the methodology was developed, and um, I think we, um, yeah, it, it, unfortunately, it hasn't been applied to Islam as much as to the Bible because I think we probably would have been a lot further um, in general like with, with with this topic if if this had been done earlier. Um, it started out really early, so it started out in the 19th century, early 20th century, but then it really hit, hit the brick wall, and now we are just picking up again from where we left off, like um, in the 1920s, roughly. So um, I think I think it's great that this is happening now, and I'm definitely looking forward to seeing more and more results. Thank you, thank you. Definitely, I'm enjoying this, and I hope you uh, take me up on my offer to do a, a couple of live streams with me, where you can unpack many of your findings, of course, because I want people to benefit from that, and of course, for me to add my flavor in terms of my background as well, as it speaks into what you're, uh, you know, doing uh, in terms of your research. So, thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate you, Thomas. Mel, um, you know, you and I have done a number of shows, but tell us, uh, you know, either, I mean, you can take one or two angles or maybe combine them together. The most damaging findings from your perspective concerning sin, or at least when you compare your findings to, for instance, the biblical narrative, what sticks out to you? Yeah, um, I will show a slide here on the screen, if I may. Okay, so this slide here is, um, where were the stations of Abraham? So in um, Islam, it declares that Abraham had a station way down in the Hejaz. But if we look at the biblical narrative, and we can dispute where Ur was, but if you look at Haran, Shechem, uh, Beersheba, Jerusalem, Hebron, these are the places that we know were connected with Abraham. There's no biblical support for the idea that Abraham was ever um, down in the Hejaz. I think that's a big hole in the narrative there. Um, And there is literally no evidence to support the um, the Islamic narrative on that one. They just literally transposed everything uh, down south. Um, If you look at this image here, uh, we know that in the Quran, it seems to be talking with a Jewish and Christian audience. And this is where we find the Jewish and Christian audience. Um, It's basically in the Fertile Crescent. And we see Nestorianism up here. Um, We have Edessa. uh, And we have, obviously, Jerusalem and so on. This is really the, I think, 
where we, we would expect the Quran to have come from and where we would expect Islam to have come from. The other thing is, if we think about the conflict at that time, the 7th century, think about the Byzantines and the Persians. They were in conflict there. That was the, the dividing line between the two sides. And you have the Ghassanids in the west and the Lakhmids in the east, who were both two Arab groups, and they were the buffer zone between the two empires. And really, if you want to ask the question, how did Islam begin? You first of all have to go back to what was the location of the conflict. Well, it was way up here in the north. There was nothing um, happening way down south in the Hejaz. And this is this is the centre of uh, the drama. Um, so I think that's tells its own story. If we look at this, and apologies for the big blue blob, it didn't come out so well here on this. But if you look at this map here, you can see the presence of Aramaic speak, speakers in the 7th century and then Hebrews there, and Arabic is down here. But if we take into account the fact that the Quran has a lot of um, not just um, Aramaic words, but stories that come from the Aramaic tradition, um, also from the Hebrew tradition, it fits for the Quran to have come from here. I think this image here really tells its own tale. Way down here, the people wouldn't be interacting with uh, you know, all of the various stories that uh, abounded in the Syriac community. Um, so it's it's an anomaly that should be really obvious to anyone who looks into it. Um, if I take um, another example, the Nabataean alphabet is a halfway house between Aramaic and Arabic. And of course, the, the Nabataean um, alphabet is what um, the Arabic script came from. So it started out as a cursive form of Nabataean, developed into the Arabic alphabet from the 4th century, which is why Nabataean's letter forms are intermediate between the more northerly Semitic scripts such as Hebrew and those of Arabic. And due to this, it was possible to transliterate from Aramaic to Arabic easily. So when we hear um, talk about how the Quran was originally in, in Aramaic or, you know, texts were in Aramaic first and it became the Quran, it makes sense when we take into account the fact that, uh, you know, the, the Arabic script came out of uh, the Nabataean alphabet. And uh, on this slide here, we can see uh, the similarity between the scripts. Um, and it's interesting, even the terminology that we find in the Quran, uh, all the religious terminology, it's either Aramaic or Hebrew. Again, that tells its own tale. It, it supports the idea that this was in a milieu which was familiar with Christianity and Judaism. You don't find that way down the Hijaz. Um, if we take another example here, we find that the Nabataean script was refined in Hira, which you'll find here. And you'll also notice that all of the Jewish academies are around Hira. And now the, the Quran makes sense. It's in dialogue with the Christians, it's in dialogue with the Jews. It makes perfect sense up here. It makes no sense down in um, the Hejaz. And also what's interesting is you have the Manichaeans are in this area who obviously have a lot of Gnostic um, influences and so on. So you can see here that Mani started here back in the third century and Manichaeism spread alongside Islam over the centuries. So that's interesting. And we can see elements of Manichaeism in the Quran as well. Um, so obviously I'm just giving you a bird's eye view, but as you look at the maps, it becomes pretty obvious where Islam began. 
Um, here's another map and it gives you an idea of the Jewish Academy. So if we were looking for places where the, the people who wrote the Quran were interacting, um, guess number one would be here where the Jewish Academies are. And guess number two would be over here. You won't find that level of knowledge of Judaism anywhere else but these two places in particular. So that's where I'd be expecting uh, the, the writers behind the Quran to have been interacting with people. Right, right. Excellent point. Excellent point. Um, if I take one more example, if we think about the fact that, is it a coincidence that the Shafi and Hanafi schools developed in the same place and time as the Jewish academies? Now, this is a bit of a, a muddle of a map there, uh, which I borrowed from the internet, but you can see that in black there, Pompadita and Sura are, these are some examples of the Jewish academies and Hanafi and the Shafi um, uh, schools started there as well. And what's interesting is they paralleled the Jewish approach. So, for example, the Jews had the Torah and the Mishnah. Muslims had their Quran and the Sunnah. And the same sort of uh, method, uh, sorry, same sort of methodology you find in both. So this paints a Northern narrative um, and not the standard Islamic narrative. Um, and what's also interesting, if we look at this map here, can see in dark blue is where Greek was spoken at the time. And here's the Hellenized area. And we mentioned earlier that the Alawites um, viewed the Greek philosophers as prophets. And what's interesting in the Quran, you find Galen's erroneous embryology. You find Thales' idea that everything is made out of water. These are both um, Greeks. And you also have references made to reincarnation, which is directly from Greek philosophy. Um, I'm not probably going to go into all of that now, because I'm sure it's a bit too much, but I'll just show that there as evidence. Mel, I, I, I want your brother just to, uh, if you can, uh, if you want to wrap it up, if you want to focus on one last thing, maybe, uh, just because I want to give time uh, to uh, our remaining guests here because we have about 10 minutes left. Yep. Um, so the last point I would say is, again, up north, we have the origin of Al-Fitr. It came from Haran, and I've shown this on a, a video before, that there's uh, very strong archaeological evidence to support that. So again, it's, it proves that Islam came from the north. So if you look at the maps, look at the archaeology, I think there's a very strong case for Islam having begun in this milieu up in the north. So that's it for me. Thanks, Mel. Uh, Jay? Uh, uh, no, I want to say something at the very end. Go ahead and get all okay. these guys out. And then I want to say and wrap this all up all right. and bring it together. And, and by the way, uh, yeah, so we have about uh, less than 10 minutes left. So um, I apologize, Murad, Odin, and Paul, if you can just uh, give us a quick answer to this question about mm -hmm. maybe uh, if you compare, uh, you know, your research about the standard Islamic narrative with the New Testament, for instance, or the Bible, is there something specific that sticks out to you? And then Jay will wrap it up. After we close, please stay with us. We can interact with some of the questions that we've been receiving. So, uh, 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 Murad, if you can start, please. Okay, just uh, one simple thing. If uh, the Kaaba and Mecca was really the house of Abraham, why didn't ever any Jew or Christian try and invade Mecca, Saudi Arabia? This is one. Now, when it comes with the Bible, every time you see new archaeological finds from Israel confirming the Bible, so, actually, I don't believe in the Bible as salvation. I'm not a Christian, but I do believe that it is history. And everything written in it happened in history, and it is carved in stone. And, and that's it for me. All right. Thank you. Um, Odin? Yes, to, to do it very, very quick. Um, 
I think uh, we have now evidence to show that the Quran is not an Islamic text. I know this is heresy. People are, <laughs> must be saying, what, 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 what is he uttering here? But uh, when we look at the, at the Quran, we don't see, when we look at the literal text of the Quran, we, we don't see Islam as much as proto-Islam, as something that came before Islam. And what we understand then is that the Quran is not the source of Islam, but a sort of byproduct. It, it is a product of Islam. Islam made the Quran out of previous scriptures. And uh, particularly, one can look at um, the dimensions of the word Quran in the Quranic text. And this is um, something I'm about to unwrap here, but there is a, a video in preparation with a recording uh, that is scheduled uh, with Jay, and we will, we will get um, all the details uh, of this. But what we see in the Quranic text is that the, the Quran that is designated is not the Islamic Quran, but it is another book, which is not the Islamic Quran. It is an Arabic lectionary, so a religious book, which is not the Quran, which uh, is taken from the mother scripture, the mother kitab. And what is the mother the kitab? kitab? Yeah. I think it is the Torah. I yeah. think those are Jewish scriptures. And we have so evidence in the Quran itself that the Quran, the Quranic text, Quran, is not the Islamic Quran, but another book. And I don't know how the standard Islamic narrative can cope with this. Yep. Wonderful, wonderful. That's a good way to uh, to say it. And also, this will be exciting for people to uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, Paul, uh, you get the last word before Jay, which you know, Jay always gets the last word. <laughs> Hi. The, um, it, it seems to me absolutely obvious, and, and it should have been obvious from day one, uh, that the Quran is not intended to be to be read or recited as a standalone document. Um, it, it is absolutely saturated by by biblical references. Uh, some of them are obvious, such as the stories and the names of the prophets, uh, and others are, are far more subtle and and are only really now being uh, becoming popularly known. Um, where uh, Gabriel Said Reynolds has done fantastic work in tracking biblical turns of phrase. Um, in, in the Quran and, and little phrases, little um, combinations of words that, that, that show that it's intended to be, um, to be uh, read in conjunction with the Torah and the, and the New Testament and, another, and the Psalms and other, and other works. So where this all goes is that in order to understand the Quran, you've really got to read it within the context of the, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, and, and the Islamic world, very belatedly, needs to wake up and start doing this. And, uh, and they need to start, Muslims need to start reading and learning about the Old Testament and the New Testament and the other parabiblical writings, the apocryphal gospels and the Talmud and so on. And they need to start putting the Quran inside that framework. And that's, uh, that's where it's, it's going. And that's where we need to, to put the Quran where it belongs within this Judeo-Christian tradition and, and, and stop 
with this with this nonsensical idea that it's a standalone document revealed in the desert, miles from anywhere, and um, and uh, and only explicable by fantastical stories about winged horses and and so on. Yep. Thank you so much, Paul. Fascinating. Jay, you get three minutes, my brother, before I wrap it up myself. Yeah, and I, I think if you've been listening to what all these fellows have been saying, you notice they're all saying, I'm getting a lot of texts coming in, people saying, they're all saying the same thing. Well, lo and behold, if you start to sift all the standard Islamic narrative, what comes out at the end, what is the germ, the gem, the the, the beautiful historical narrative that we are looking for? We're looking for the historical narrative. And when you look at the historical narrative, it goes back to what was actually there in the 7th century. Have you noticed, when you, uh, un- you pull away all the layers of the Quran, when you pull all the layers of Muhammad's character, when you pull all the layers of Mecca, the book, the man, and the place, when you pull all the layers and come to what you get at the very end, what do you get at the very end? You, you see a 7th century environment of lots of different sectarian groups, Jewish and Christians, who are in that northern area, not down in the, down in the south. They're all up in the north, as Mel has been trying to, uh, trying to really emphasize. But take a look and see what was happening. There There was a real internecine confrontation going on because they were waiting for Jesus to return, as Odin has always said. They didn't see Jesus return. Therefore, you're having different groups who are trying to get to ascendancy. When you start to see that ascendancy, who are the ones who are the ascendant? They are the the ones, the Arians, who do not believe in Jesus as God. They are the ones that Abdul Malik introduces, confronting the divinity of Jesus, confronting the Trinity, confronting his sonship. And what do they do? They are the ones that now have to create not only a man or book and a place, they've got to then create that identity, which they don't have, but the Jews and the Christians do. And that's why you stay, they start to introduce this man, Muhammad. He becomes a man. But what's fascinating, look at the book. The book really shows that there's a problem here because when you start taking the text in the script, out of it. Look and see what Luling found. Look and see what Luxembourg found. If you take out the harakat, if you take out the ijams, the harakat are the vowels. You take out the, the ijams, which are the dots. Take out the dots and the vowels, and you go back to the germinal text. You go back to the skeletal text of the Quran itself. You suddenly realize that this comes from another book. This is another book is, are these hymns? Are these lectionaries? Are these homilies that Odin's been talking about? What what uh, our, our good friend Thomas has been talking about? What, they have there, what Luxembourg and Luling discovered way back in the 1970s. Luling's got destroyed, thrown out of the university system because of what he discovered 50 years ago and had to go into obscurity. And that text, when you go and see the text that the Quran comes from, Take a look and see what it's all about. It's all about Jesus Christ. Really, the original Quran was all about Jesus. And that's what gets me excited because what I have been struggling for for 40 years, one thing that I've always been asking is we need to get people back to Jesus. We need to bring the Muslims home. Have you not heard me say this so many times? Right. You've heard me say this for years because you've been working with me for years. We need to bring Muslims home. And when we bring them home, let's take them away from the Quran that has bastardized these lectionaries. Remember what Odin said. Remember Odin uh, uh, on Surah 23 and Surah 70, when we unpack that. When you look and see this beautiful prayer in Surah 23 that's about the believers, what their duties are, and what the what the, uh, what's going to happen to the believers, what their rewards are, that beautiful prayer is bastardized in verse 6 and 7 by saying what chastity. Chastity allows polygamy and also allows that which your right hand possesses. That's a bastardization of a beautiful prayer that was to Jesus Christ and to believers. That is what the Quran has done. That is what Islam has done. That is what the prophet Muhammad has done. He has bastardized my Lord. He has bastardized my book and he has bastardized everything I know to be holy and true. And that's why I want to bring Muslims home. I want to bring him back to Jesus. I want to bring him back to the original Quran, which was all about this man, 
and that place and that book. Thank you. And thank you, uh, our great panelists here. I appreciate you taking the time to do this. And uh, as I stated, I would love to reach out to each one of you to do one, two, maybe even more than, uh, than that live streams to focus on your area of expertise, some of the material you've shared with us uh, here today. I apologize that the time did not allow for you to unpack everything, but this is just a teaser uh, for people to at least uh, get acquainted with your work. And again, thank you, Dr. J, for uh, helping me coordinate all of this and also Brother Mel, who uh, played a factor in that as well. Again, thank you to our uh, viewers here in our live studios and thank you to our listeners on our podcast, Let Us Reason. This is the conclusion of part four of our podcast and also uh, the official conclusion of our live stream. But uh, after we wrap it up right now, I would like for you to stay uh, uh, with us for a few more minutes, if possible, to see if you have any questions and for our panelists to respond to that, provided the questions are related to the topic. We're not going to address questions about the Trinity, right? We didn't talk about the Trinity. We're not going to address questions about the deity of Christ and Christology. We did not talk about that. So those are for different, uh, uh, you know, uh, audience, for different topics, for different uh, guests that we bring here to talk about those specific uh, uh, issues. So with that in mind, I want to thank everyone. Thank you for those who also gave through uh, Super Chat. I saw Islam uh, critique. Uh, uh, brother, uh, we miss you. Thank you so much uh, for all that you do. And thank you, everyone, for joining us here. This is Al-Fadi. God bless you all. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.